Well, if you are visiting with us again for the first time, we do welcome you and are so thankful to have you. It is our common practice to preach through books of the Bible, verse by verse. And this morning we find ourselves in our next section, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And we will be looking specifically at verses 12 through 16. 1 Corinthians seven twelve through 16. And the title of my sermon is, God has called you to peace. The key words for our children, our worshipers in training, are holy, peace, and children. Holy, peace, and children. And I actually want to start by reading in Ephesians chapter 5 to set up where we are going today. So let me... Simply read this section in Ephesians chapter 5, and then I will explain why I've read this. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so I think it's very important as we move into this portion of Scripture that we understand what the Apostle Paul is saying here in Ephesians 5, that he is painting this picture of what marriage is. What is it all about? And we don't get the understanding that marriage is about what many of us maybe have understood it to be, or perhaps uh, in many ways what the world has seen it to be, that marriage is simply about two people who fall in love and figure out that it is probably going to work out, so they tie the knot and go for it. But he gives us a much greater reality of what marriage truly is. And we see marriage presented as a sort of parable being lived out by each and every one of us. It's a parable of Christ's relationship to His bride, the church. And so, a man in his household is a representative of Christ in this parable. And he loves his wife well. He sacrifices himself for his wife. He works for her sanctification and for her cleansing. He leads her. He teaches her. Likewise, the wife is a representative in the marriage relationship of the church who lovingly submits to her husband, who follows him, who is his helper, who loves him and respects him. 
And so we see here then how Christ relates to the church. And the, the whole picture of marriage is painted that as we walk along together in marriage that we are displaying to the world that Christ loves His bride and the bride loves her Christ. And this is a beautiful reality as it gets worked out day after day after day in our homes with our spouse. And I think this must be the very foundation for all discussions that we have on marriage. Without having a proper understanding of what marriage is and why we even get married in the first place, we cannot go any further in discussing how to live it out and how to ask questions about what happens in those marriages. So keep this in mind as we walk through the text today, that marriage is a representation of Christ's relationship to His church. So the question today that we see in the text is, what is a Christian to do who is married to a non-Christian? We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. And now I want to say this before we jump in. This is a very, very difficult text. There are probably three or four things as I read through this text that, uh, that stand out as, as things that have always been debated in the church, uh, things that are drawn from and turned to in, in many different uh, disagreements uh, within the church. And, uh, and so we see uh, various things that as we read through it that we're going to struggle through together. One of the wonderful things about preaching verse by verse through the Bible is we're forced to deal with passages like this. It's also one of the difficult things that I wish we could skip right over these verses, but we can't. So we're going to walk through them together. First, 1 Corinthians 7, we'll read together beginning in verse 12. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband." Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? I want to begin by... Understanding that marriage was something that was instituted in the very beginning of creation. In Genesis 2, we see that God created man. And then in verse 18, we see that God has said, It is not good for man to be alone, so I will make a helper fit for him. And so we have this picture that Adam is in the garden and God is bringing the animals to him and he's naming them as they arrive. And whatever name he gives them is what they are. So he sees them come, he says, zebra, giraffe, lion, armadillo, whatever. As they come before Adam, he's giving them names. 
And as he's doing this, he is not seeing a helper fit for him. So God puts him in a deep sleep, removes a rib from his side, and from that creates woman, Eve. And God brings her to Adam. And so as he's naming the animals, he's looking for a helper of sorts fit for him. He sees Eve and he says, that's what I'm talking about. And so now we see the institution of marriage. God brings the woman to man to become his helper. And at last, Adam says, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she comes out of man. And then in verse 24 of chapter 2 in Genesis, we see that man is to leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and become one flesh. And they were naked and not ashamed. So we see from the very beginning that marriage is a valid and very right institution created by God for believers and non-believers alike. Now, hear me properly in that not believers marrying unbelievers, but that believers and non-believers are to enter into marriage. And this is important to consider the creation principle of non-Christian marriages because of the historical context of the passage that we are in today. So let's walk through these verses. Paul begins by saying, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord. Who are the rest? Well, he is now talking about Christians who are married to unbelievers. So, there's an assumption that we... I think can safely make here, and that is that these Christians who are married to non-believers are ones who were converted to Christianity after they were married. So they were married as non-believers, they became Christians, and they were converted. And so now one spouse is a Christian and one is not. And we see very clearly again in verse 39 of chapter 7 that Paul's admonition to the Corinthians is that they are to marry only in the Lord. So I think we can safely make the assumption that he's speaking of those converted after they were married. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 14 he says, "Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers." So again, he's not granting permission here for a believer to marry an unbeliever. He's saying, if this union already exists, here's what is to come of it. And he explains why that is. Why is it that a believer shall not marry one who is an unbeliever? He goes on in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 and following. He says, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What does the light have to do with the darkness? What does Christ have to do with Satan? What does the temple of God have to do with idols? So he's drawing these major distinctions and saying, this is oil and water. These two things do not mix. A Christian with a non-Christian in the bonds of matrimony is a very, very difficult situation. And it shall not be so from the beginning. So we see it is very difficult And in the context of what's going on here in Corinthians, we see that unions of marriage were threatened by this very thing. 
either the husband or the wife was converted to Christianity after they were married. Christ has saved them, and now they are walking in faithfulness to the gospel, and their spouse is not. So their union is threatened by this very thing. And the Corinthians were probably thinking to divorce their spouse in this situation thinking that it would be legitimate and the best action to resolve the tension that existed in the household because of that relationship. And you could see where it would become very difficult to live in that situation and why it would be easy to justify in that situation that there truly is no association between light and darkness, therefore the two shall separate. And you could see where it would be particularly difficult for a wife who was converted. It would be difficult for a wife to walk in submission to her husband, loving her husband, following her husband, when he truly is not a believer in Christ. But what we see here, contrary to what the Corinthians were most likely arguing, Paul is now correcting their thinking on these relationships. While it appears that the Christians in many ways were trying to bail on their marriage, Paul is saying the very opposite. And before we move on, what to make of this statement in parentheses, I, not the Lord. What is Paul saying here? This statement that follows is no less authoritative because Paul is saying, I am saying this, this is not a direct command from the Lord. In other words, he's saying this is not found in the law and the prophets, but rather this is a sort of exposition on the Lord's command on divorce. And we saw that last week when he said, not I, but the Lord says that a wife should not separate from her husband. And if she does, she should remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. So that was the command from the Lord, and that was directly from the Lord. And we can read that in the Gospels. But now he's saying, I'm saying this, this is not directly from the Scriptures, from the Law and the Prophets, this is an exposition on the Lord's command on divorce. So it's not just Paul's best advice. It's not Paul saying, I think this would be best if you did this. But he's doing somewhat of a sermon, but with apostolic authority. He is expounding on that which God has commanded. So what does he say? To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Okay, so the first thing he addresses here is a man who is a believer in Christ who now has an unbelieving wife. What to do? He says very clearly, if a Christian, a brother, has a wife who's an unbeliever, she consents to live with him, do not divorce her. How do we get there? There's a lot of practical things we have to dig out here and ask, well, how is that possible? We just saw Paul in 2 Corinthians, you're saying that light has no relationship with darkness, that these two things cannot go together. The very reason why you're telling us not to marry unbelievers in the first place. But now I'm married to one and you're saying, I must stay married if she consents to stay married to me. What do I do? 
I think we have good instruction from 1 Peter chapter 3 for both husbands and wives. For husbands, it says in 1 Peter 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 7, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So, a believing husband living with his unbelieving wife with respect, honoring her, knowing that she is a weaker vessel and continuing to love her. He's talking about those who consent to live together in this covenant marriage. And this word consent, he's saying essentially that they agree and approve. It's not done by coercion. It's an unbeliever saying, I know you're a Christian. I want to be married to you. I want to continue on in this marriage. He then turns to the opposite situation, a wife who is a Christian and now has an unbelieving husband. What must a wife do in that situation? Again, 1 Peter 3, verse 1, Wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. And so in, in many ways, he's addressing this very situation in First Peter. Wives, if you have a husband who is an unbeliever, walk with him, follow him, as long as he's not leading you to sin, and by your quiet submission and following of him, he may be one without even saying a word. He will see your respect for him. He will see that you are following him and loving him well. And in that, the Lord may be pleased to save him. Now, in verses 10 through 11, which we talked about two weeks ago, we see that they're based solely on the Lord's command, as I've already mentioned. There's really no explanation of that needed for Paul. If you're married to a Christian, do not divorce. That's essentially what he's saying. And if there is a divorce... First, do not remarry, and second, seek to be reconciled to your spouse. That is the clear direction that he gives in 10 and 11. But because of the cultural climate, verse 12 and following, Paul is supplementing the Lord's command with two additional reasons to remain if you're married to an unbeliever. First is that, your fears can be eliminated. And he says that Christians sanctify or make holy a non-Christian spouse. And it doesn't happen the other way around. The non-Christian is not contaminating the Christian because they are secure in Christ. And so he's saying, you need not fear that you be contaminated by your unbelieving spouse. But rather, you understand that as you walk with your spouse, that God is using that in a sense to make them holy. And we'll talk about what that means in a few minutes. Secondly, Paul gives this reason to remain in this marriage because they are called to peace. He reminds them that they are a people who, as believers, are called to peace. So their conversion to Christianity does not necessitate a divorce. And we see 
Two things here, how a husband is to relate to his wife if she is a non-believer, and then we see a wife relating to her husband if he is an unbeliever. Verse 12, if a brother has a wife who is a non-believer, she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And then the second part of verse 14. The unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. And then squeezed right in the middle of that, a wife with an unbelieving husband. Verse 13, if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, he consents to live with her. She should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. So remain in the marriage if they consent to do so. And by doing so, they are being made holy because of your relationship. Okay, so what does he mean by this whole idea of an unbeliever being made holy because of their believing spouse? Paul does not specify specifically how it is that an unbeliever is made clean or holy. But there's a few things that we know to be absolutely certain because of the whole of Scripture and what Paul has taught in many other places. What he is not talking about is their salvation. Paul is not saying that by you living with your unbelieving spouse, that they will be justified in Christ. He's not saying because you're a Christian, that by proxy makes them to be a believer. That makes them to be secure in Christ. Paul's also not speaking of morality. He's not saying that as you walk in this Christian life that they will follow in morality. He's not speaking of morality because we know all that Paul has said of the Christian heart. So, not salvation because we know that Paul has taught time and again that we are justified by faith alone apart from works of the law. It is not of our own doing, but it is a gift of God. We know likewise that Paul's concern is not morality, but gospel obedience. And truly, a non-believer is not able to walk in morality that is pleasing to God. So that is not his concern either. The heart of man is deceitful and wicked above all things. I think we can also conclude that Paul is not speaking here of an unbelieving spouse in some way being now part of a Christian covenant. I think the reason would be uh, the same as it is with the child because Paul is using the same language here. And this is one of those places where I said before that there's a lot of back and forth over what does this mean about a child and everything else. Um, I conclude that the reasoning is the same as we would say as a child is not made a Christian and brought into this covenant because of the family, the same with the unbelieving spouse. So there's various ideas of meaning here. But I think the best thing that we can deduce from all of this is an idea between clean and unclean. Throughout the Old Testament, as we read about sacrifices, as we read about sins that have been committed and having to be put outside the gate, we see that one who is clean is not to touch something or someone who is unclean. Because in doing so, there would be a defilement that is transferred. 
We see also in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 7, that he talks about the difference between impurity and holiness. So, as he talks about being making one who is an unbeliever holy or clean, he's speaking of this difference between clean and unclean. So, uncleanliness is something belonging to the pagan world outside of the church. And so many of the Christians who were converted and they now had an unbelieving spouse were worried about their marriage. And all this worry was stemming from this anxiety because of potential defilement. They thought they might be defiled because they are now with one who is unclean. They were with one who is a non-believer, who's not walking in obedience to the Word of God. And so they thought this to be a potential defilement, especially as it related to a sexual relationship. So the thrust of this passage, and hopefully I can summarize that a little bit better. <coughs> An unbeliever's status as a non-Christian does not contaminate the believer nor should it play a part in how the Christian deals with them specifically in their marriage. Because clean trumps unclean. It's not a magical process that happens. There's no holiness that's being transferred, but it hinges on this one flesh idea. Even with a non-Christian, because God blesses marriage as a creation institute. So, unbelieving, an unbelieving spouse and children in a household benefit because they are in the sphere of influence of this believer. They're in the sphere of influence of the church because of this believer. That is not to say that this situation is not very difficult for a believer. And I think we can all think of those who we know, and maybe even some of you, who have been in or are in relationships where this happens to be the case. Where a believer living with an unbeliever and the difficulty that exists in that. Anything from, how does, how does the, the household operate? What do we do within the household when problems arise? What do we consult? Who do we go to? What is our source of truth? Of direction? How do we raise the children? What instruction do we give them? Do we go to church? Do we not go to church? All of these difficulties arise when there is an unequal yoking along with many others. So it is a very difficult situation for believers. But Paul is saying, most certainly, if you are in that relationship because you've been converted after your marriage, continue on. Remember back in chapter 6, verses 15 through 17, Paul looks at a relationship between a Christian who unites himself to a prostitute. What's the difference here? Because there, he's saying that that is uncleanliness. That is sinful. That is outside of what God has designed. But... The Christian cannot convey holiness, this idea of cleanliness, to the one who is a prostitute in that situation because it is outside of God's will. Fornication is the antithesis to holiness. 
Marriage is a divine institution regardless of the believing status. This is something instituted by God. So, for clarity's sake, so we're all on the same page, Paul is not talking about holiness coming to a person by transfer or by proxy. In the context of this entire chapter, Paul is arguing against divorce. So he's saying marriage has the same status as a Christian marriage and shall not be abandoned. And God's holiness within the Christian is at work in that relationship, regardless of the gender, whether it's a male believer or a female believer. Why does Paul then address children in this? We see he brings that up. Otherwise, your children, end of verse 14, would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Why in this is he bringing up this discussion about children? Well, the Corinthians certainly would have thought it ludicrous to consider a child from that marriage to be unclean. They understood that a child would not be born contaminated because they have an unbelieving parent. And so Paul is noting a sort of inconsistent reasoning that is going on. If the spouse is unclean as an unbeliever, then... Shouldn't the children be considered the same? And so he's using sort of a rhetorical device here to say, if you think your spouse is unclean and you must divorce them, then you must also put out your children if they are unbelievers. He's saying, but you see, that's not the case. Therefore, continue on. And so we must see this in the context of what he's arguing for. The Corinthians would not expel their children. So why are they seeking to expel, to get rid of, to divorce, to separate from their spouse? (coughs) And he moves into verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. The King James Version says it like this. If the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. This verse here falls under a larger issue of the ideas of divorce and remarriage. Now, before we get into this, I want to say that as we search the Scriptures, we know that as we read the Bible, uh, we're seeking the truth. And there is only one truth. But because we see only through the glass dimly, Uh, we understand that sometimes there is disagreement on what that truth is. And so, I am going to put forward on this verse specifically two different tracks for us to run on because we need to, in many ways, agree to disagree in peace as we come to verses like this that we have difficulty working through. Pastor uh, Steve Martin, who's a pastor at... um, Heritage Reformed Baptist Church in Fayetteville, Georgia. He, he was talking about disagreements and, uh, and he said, 
I only agree with myself 95% of the time. So there's an understanding that, of course, we will in the church have disagreements, particularly as we read difficult passages of Scripture like this. And I also want to say before we walk into this that I, I'm extremely sensitive to the fact that this situation may describe many of you where you are now, where you have been, and it is in no way, shape, or form my intent to beat anyone over the head with this. And so I want to be sensitive to that, and I hope you sense that as we walk through this passage with a little explanation. And I will say this too, that this is a verse of not very many that uh, your three pastors don't have complete agreement on. And I'll tell you that the divide is uh, is. Me thinking one thing and Pastor Russ and Pastor Steve thinking something else. And when it comes to the overall evangelical community, they're in the majority and I'm in the minority. So take that for what it's worth as we walk through this. So first, uh, track one that we will look at is the majority evangelical opinion and has been since the Reformation. And that is this. That verse 15 means that if an unbeliever abandons a believer in that marriage, that the believer is free to divorce their spouse and to remarry. So the understanding is that when Paul says, let it be so, he's saying, let the divorce continue on. Let the divorce happen. And when he says that they are not enslaved, he is speaking of them being able to be remarried, not enslaved to this relationship any longer. They're free from the bonds of that relationship. Therefore, they are free to remarry. And I hope that's an accurate description. And uh, it is, as I said, the most common modern evangelical consensus since the Reformation. Now, track two, and mine will most certainly take more explanation, but I want to tell you how I get here. And it is this, if an unbeliever divorces a believer, the believer should not make war on them to stay in that relationship because God has called them to peace, as we see in verse 15. So there is no need for them to feel enslaved to Christ's prohibition here about divorce, thinking you have sinned if you're not the one seeking the divorce. So, in other words... If your spouse, who's an unbeliever, leaves you and forces you into a divorce, then don't fight them on it. They can go. You you are not enslaved to continue to make war on them to remain in that relationship. But what I do not see in this passage is that Paul is saying that after that has happened, that the one who has been abandoned is free to remarry. Let me give you uh, four reasons why. First, when Paul says not enslaved, it's a reference to not being enslaved to maintaining a marriage when an unbeliever insists upon and sues for a divorce. 
Not that a Christian is free from the enslavement of what would at that point be singleness. I don't see that Paul would, just a few verses earlier, be promoting the love that he has for singleness, calling other believers to this life of singleness, and now saying that it is enslavement. Paul is a lover of singleness. And so for him to call it enslavement seems inconsistent with the rest of his argument. Number two, in verses 10 through 11, and especially where he says, if she does, and so he's talking here of a spouse, uh, a, a woman in this case being divorced from her husband. They're both believers here. If she does have a divorce from her husband, and the assumption here is that he has left her, Paul says in verse 11, she should remain unmarried. Why? I think the answer is in Luke chapter 16, verse 18, where Jesus himself said, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. So Jesus calls remarriage adultery, even for the innocent party. We see that when it says this woman in Luke, he's speaking of a husband leaving his wife and then this wife who has been divorced by her husband, if she marries again, commits adultery. So even for the one who was the innocent party. So in verse 15 of our passage, I don't see that four verses after verse 11, he's now advocating remarriage when he says... If they're divorced, she should remain unmarried. Thirdly, verse 16, wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? Verse 16 does not seem to support the idea of remarriage, but rather the freedom to accept divorce peaceably. So the answer to Paul's rhetorical questions there is, You don't know if your spouse will be saved. And it's a very optimistic questioning that he's giving here. Walking peaceably with them, even if they are insisting on abandoning you in divorce, may be the very means that that the Lord uses for their salvation. And fourthly, I see in the Scriptures the only explicit permission that is granted for remarriage is chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians verse 39. Namely, that a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. It's the only place we have an explicit permission granted for remarriage is in the death of that spouse. And that seems very hard, and the disciples thought the very same thing. In Matthew chapter 19, we see this. I want to read it so I get it correct. Matthew 19, verses 10 through 12. As he spoke of divorce, the disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man and his wife, it is better not to marry at all. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. 
And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. And so, in many ways, he's saying if you're single or if you're divorced, God gives you the grace to continue on in your status. You are not alone. There are others walking in this with you, but more so than them, you are walking in the grace that the Lord provides. Now, I will say, historically, and this is another thing that I look at, uh, while it is certainly not authoritative, interesting to note that this, as I've just explained, ha- was the only understanding of divorce and remarriage in the first five centuries of church history. Twenty-five of the early church fathers wrote about this very thing I just described, and two councils of the church concluded that remarriage after divorce any under, under any circumstances was forbidden while the spouse was still alive. And then the other position, which is now the majority position in evangelicalism, was solidified during the Reformation. It was ensconced in the Westminster Confession of Faith, and then, I believe, the Baptists went through and cleaned it up, because it's not in the 1689 London Baptist Confession. There's no statement in there about divorce and remarriage. Many presume that is because of this very disagreement. So, I say all that to say that this is nothing new. This is not something that uh, you have to worry about, your elders not getting along about. We certainly do, and I'll explain why in a minute. Uh, But uh, it has been a debate in the church uh, from the beginning, really. Uh, So, it is important, nonetheless, that we strive to find what is the truth. Important in all of this is that Paul has said, God has called you to peace. He's calling these Christians married to to non-believers to maintain peaceful relationships with their spouse, even if they are seeking divorce. It also implies that you're not the one seeking the divorce. If they consent to live with you, if they consent to be married to you, then you continue on in that relationship. And that points us to verse 16. Why would I continue in that relationship? The rhetorical questions that we read. We don't know whether or not in that relationship God will use that in order to save our unbelieving spouse. So if an unbeliever stays in that marriage relationship, you stay in that marriage relationship. If they leave, you're not enslaved to fight against them. And to save there, he's not talking, and again, here's another part where there's a lot of confusion. When he says, you do not know whether or not you will save your husband or you will save your wife, he's not talking about a believer being able to justify or bring into salvation their unbelieving spouse. He's talking about to gain to make a convert by them seeing our conduct, by them hearing the gospel from us, seeing the gospel lived out, and the Lord being pleased to use that as a means to their salvation. So a Christian spouse living peaceably, seeking reconciliation, remaining available for reconciliation, even after they've been divorced, is what I believe Paul is calling these 
group of people too. So Paul is saying then, do not abandon your marriage. God may very well save your spouse. And he's directing these Christians who want to bail to instead, like him, sacrifice themselves for the gain to Christ, no matter how unlikely it seems. It's consistent with verses 12 through 13. Walk in this relationship with them. It'll be difficult. It'll be hard. And sometimes you're going to think there's no hope in this. But to maintain that relationship that you can do your part to live out this parable of Christ's relationship to His church is so vitally important. And in the end, the gospel is far more important than your comfort. So I know in saying all this that many of us are in various situations. Some of you have an unbelieving spouse. Some of you have been divorced and you're currently single. Others of you have been divorced and remarried. Whatever situation you are in, and we'll look at this passage next week, Paul calls you to remain as you are. How? How do I remain as I am? If I am walking in singleness... After I've been divorced, how do I remain in that? Well, the very simple answer is is Jesus. He gives the grace to maintain that singleness, that relationship we are in. Christ is the great reconciler. And so, as He is seeking to reconcile... His people back to Him, we too must be seeking to reconcile relationships around us. So do not let our hearts grow cold to those who have abandoned us. Continue to love them. Continue to have open arms to receive them back and to be reconciled that we can walk once again in marriage. And this time, should the Lord save them, we can do so with beautiful Harmony as we seek to live out this relationship between Christ and the church. Jesus is the giver of hope and comfort in some seemingly hopeless situations. Walk with Christ. He will never leave or forsake you. Likewise, He will never leave or forsake the church. Therefore, we must never leave or forsake our spouse, believer or unbeliever. So the answer to all of this is very simply the gospel. No matter what the situation is, God is reconciling all things to himself in Christ, as we looked at last week in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if you look at this passage and you are convicted by this and you're saying, well, what now? I had a former spouse. I now have a new spouse. What now? Well, believer, you are in Christ. And so Christ has forgiven whatever sin might exist there and is now calling you to obedience to what His Word says. Continue on. Love your spouse. Do not abandon your spouse. If you've been sinned against, if one has left you, If you have been abandoned, look to Christ. He is our example of reconciliation. 
and He is our hope in what seems to be a very difficult, very hopeless situation. Seek to live at peace with others. Always be willing to love and forgive and to receive back. And so some may think then of the Gospel and think of a horrible marriage that they're in and they say, well, in the end... If I do this, it might be sin, but grace is going to cover that sin eventually, so I'm going to do it anyway, and I'll ask for forgiveness later. What does the Apostle Paul say to that in Romans? Should we sin all the more so that grace may abound? What's his answer? By no means. Certainly not. Absolutely not. We cannot have in our hearts this idea that I know what I'm going to do is against God's Word, but my situation, my circumstances, you just don't know. It's awful. Surely no one else has had a bad marriage. I need out, and so I'm going to get out, and when I'm out, I will ask for forgiveness, and all will be good and well. Well, your heart is not for a heart to be asking forgiveness. You're not seeking true forgiveness from the Lord. You're seeking to be justified in your sinful actions. So we must question our motives. I'm going to finish here. And I want to make a few assumptions I think that will uh, bring us to a conclusion. I assume that as we walk through these verses, as a congregation with this many people here, that we will find these differences that I have described today throughout the congregation as we wrestle through this text. Some of you will think I'm crazy. Some of you will agree with me. But I want to exhort us in something else. And that is that it is far more important than us being right on secondary issues is that we are charitable in our disagreement. Especially in these secondary matters. If you agree with me, if you agree with the majority evangelical opinion, at the end of the day, these are not issues that come down to the gospel and whether or not the gospel is being presented correctly. Therefore, we must disagree in love and charity, and we cannot divide over these things. There is a slew of secondary issues that we deal with in the church, and we will disagree with them. There will be more things at some point that we will stand up here and say, Your pastors don't necessarily all have the same agreement on this issue, but they're not gospel issues. We can walk in charity with one another. We must love one another. We must work through those things. And it is okay to passionately disagree, but we must do it with love. We must be open to correction. We must be open to receiving questions, receiving rebukes, checking our hearts to make sure that we are constantly walking in love with one another. So, I ask you to bring your questions. And I'm sure that all of this today might have brought up a lot of questions in your mind and you're saying, thank you so much. I had this matter all settled in my mind and now you've really confused it. Um, Good. (laughs) Ask your questions. That's why we're here and we want to walk with you in that. 
And I may, and I don't want to promise you, but I may follow up very soon with the other guys and we'll work on writing something on divorce and remarriage so you can see how we, as your pastors, work through our thinking. And I'm going to throw this in here too because this might surprise you. At the end of the day, even though this disagreement exists with us, 99.7% of the time, we will give the same exact counsel on these issues. Why? Because in the end, we agree that God hates divorce no matter the circumstances. We want to see Christ exalted in marriage as a gospel on display in the relationship between Christ and the church. And so all three of us, with your brothers and sisters in Christ, will strive and fight to maintain a marriage relationship no matter those circumstances. We love marriage. We love to see marriage worked out. And we love to see people come out on the other side of those very difficult circumstances united to their spouse. So let us all settle here. We should at all costs avoid this idea of divorce. When I was getting married... I remember the one who counseled us said that that in their household was the dirtiest word that could be said. And I agree. Let us settle here. Strive for peace with all. Let's settle for charity toward one another. And love for God that puts His ways and His will at a much higher place and affection than our own ways and our own will. Let us strive to live with all men at peace and with God in love and truth. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You, God, that You have given us a spirit and a heart of love, grace, and charity toward one another. And we pray, asking You, Lord, that You would reveal to us what is right and what is true. You would help us, Lord, to look at difficult passages and things in the Scriptures and things that we encounter as we live out our faith from day to day, God, that You would help us to look at them first and foremost with wisdom. And second of all, with an eye toward finding and knowing what is right and true. Give us hearts, Father, that are open to correction. Let us not find our righteousness in our understanding of texts, of our theology, of our intellectualism. Father, help us to find our righteousness only in Christ because it is only Christ's righteousness which will free us from the bonds of the slavery that we all as natural men have existed in in our sin. I pray, God, that You would help us to walk in peace with one another, at peace with You. Father, aside from any issues that we may disagree in, I pray, God, that You help us to be unified. That You help us to love one another well, to walk in charity, to humbly submit ourselves to one another, be open to receiving instruction and disagreement. And in the end, Father, being able to admit if we find that we are wrong. I pray for these hearts, God, for all of us, and that we could walk in those things. And I pray, 
And I would be remiss not to for all who are in this room who are married. And I ask God that you help us to be faithful in our marriages, to live out this great parable, Christ's relationship to his church. Even, Lord, for those who are married to an unbeliever, I pray, God, that you would help them to continue on, to persevere, and to do all that they can to live with their spouse in an understanding way. And that you, O Lord, would use them as a means to bring their spouse to salvation. We pray, God, for those who are walking in singleness. We ask, God, that you would protect their hearts. You would keep them from lust and temptation. Lord, that they would see this as a time of their lives, a season of their lives that they can walk with great joy in making much of Christ without any form of being held back because of other obligations. Help them to press on hard for the sake of the gospel, for their joy and for your glory. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for difficult texts that keep us tethered to you instead of being able to figure these things out on our own. Help us, God, to love you more and trust you and to walk by faith. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.